Well, good morning. Is this a great day to be alive <clears throat> or what? How have you'd rather be in church today than just about anywhere in the world? Okay? All right. That was a little weak. Some of you would rather be at the beach. We appreciate you coming by on the way to the beach, okay? I want to welcome those of you uh, right now who are joining us uh, from an off-site campus or on the internet or a podcast or wherever you happen to be. We're glad that you are along also. Wow. Hey, listen, in uh, just a couple of weeks, Easter is coming. Uh, We're excited about Easter. There are more people that will come on an Easter than at any other time during the year. This week I was at a business that I frequent regularly, and the person who was serving me uh, told me that, said, hey, we're coming to church this Easter at Seacoast. I said, great. How often do you come? They said, well, once a year. And uh, it, was, it was good. She said, she said you know, she said, um, I just live for the whole year on your sermon. And I, I thought, you know, you could be fed a little more often. It would be okay. But... <laughs> But uh, she, made, she made an interesting comment. She said, you know, she said a particular uh, upbringing that they have, um, a lot of people uh, come on Easter and Christmas, and it's just packed out and crowded, and she loves coming to Seacoast because we offer so many services. But that her family goes at a regular time at one of our off-site campuses at, at the prime times from anywhere from 10 to noon is prime time. Usually we have two services in there. And she said, you know, it's getting really, really crowded for those. And as she said that, I thought, you know what? They, they may, I'm glad they come once a year. But if, if they can't get into a service, that may, that may prohibit them from coming at all. And um, we know that at Easter, at our primetime services here and at the campuses, they're just going to be absolutely jam-packed. We know that. We know that. This year... We feel like we, we would love to see 20,000 people attend on Easter, and we'd love to see 1,000 people say yes to Jesus for the first time. You think that's a, a good thing? You think that'd be a positive thing if, if that happened? And, and for that to happen, two things need to occur. Number one, each one of us need to invite somebody. And we're making that as simple as we can. Your campus pastor will tell you after the service or after my part, uh, what you can do to do that. I'm really excited about some of the tools that we've got. Uh, but everybody, I mean, invite somebody to come with you. And, and, and if the time that they'll come is one of those primetime services, come to the primetime service and bring them with you. Uh, if, if not, how about trying an off-time off service? We've, we've got them, I think we've got 40-some services altogether. Here at this campus, we're doing something kind of neat. We're going to have an off-location service. We have two of them at Wando High School uh, up in North Mount Pleasant. Wando High School Auditorium is just uh, incredible. They have kids stuff there, all of that. I may even speak one of them live. I'm not promising, but I'm thinking about doing that. And so uh, um, they'll, they'll tell you how to, how to kind of arrange your schedule to do all that later. But I just wanted to, to just kind of put a bug in your ear. Let's be praying for a thousand people who will come to know Jesus in a profound way that will impact their lives. Can we do that? And in fact, let's do that right now. Lord, I thank you for this coming season. And together as a church, what an honor and privilege it is to be used by you. And God, we're believing for a thousand people, a thousand of our friends and family members to experience the presence and power of Jesus in a profound way. Their lives would be changed, that joy would, would become their song, God. And uh, we just, uh, we agree together. And Lord, show us how we can be a part of that. In your name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had something like this happen? Um, this week, 
my wife Debbie uh, got an email, and it was from one of the big credit card companies, and it said uh, basically that uh, your account, you, you recently changed your email address on your account at this credit card company, and it listed the email address, which didn't mention her name, it was just some bizarre kind of different deal. And it said, if this is correct, then ignore this email. If it's not correct, you need to change it, so click here. And it had a place for you to click, and then and it looked very, very official. Now, as she looked at that, she said, something's wrong here. She said, number one, we don't have an account with this credit card company at all. Number two, I don't know where this came from. And as we examined a little bit and checked around, we found that it was what? It was a scam. And if we would have clicked on that link, uh, the least that would have happened is that they would have spammed a lot of our friends with unwanted email. Or uh, the worst that could have happened, it would have been an identity theft where they would have gotten our personal uh, information, codes, identity, and all, all of that type of thing. You ever had anything like that happen? I mean, maybe, or maybe you click on, or, or you get a Twitter or a Facebook or whatever, and it says, there are these terrible pictures of you. You've got to see that. Don't click on that link. That's a scam. You know, I know you want to see what you look like, but that's a scam, a scam. Scam comes in, scams come in all uh, kinds of packages. Uh, there can be relational scams. You know, I don't know how often I've heard this story that especially um, a young woman meets a guy and falls in love and later finds out that he's not who he led her to believe that he was. And there can be heartbreak through that. I know people in our church that have been scammed financially. When they're some, someone who uh, takes advantage of, of them and promises higher rates than what they could be and sometimes it's as much as a Ponzi scam and they can lose an entire lifetime worth of savings. Those are terrible things. But there's a scam that's even worse. It's called a spiritual scam. Uh, and this, the consequences of this scam are that uh, your family can be disrupted. Um, the purposes of God for you uh, can be thwarted, which is a major, major, major deal. And even your eternity with God. Uh, can be at risk. And so that's what I want to talk about today because what, what we're doing is we are finishing uh, the, the, our series on the book of Galatians. And this is the last uh, segment of it. I'm going to take a look at the last nine verses. And Paul in Galatians, we call it the new normal because this is kind of a reality that we live in according to what he, we've been teaching over the last few weeks. But Paul in the last section of this book returns to a theme that he's hammered on throughout the book. He says, don't be deceived by false teachers. Don't be deceived because if you do, your walk with God can be uh, greatly, greatly uh, just, uh, just rocked. And if he thinks it's that important, we need to take one last look at how we spot false teachers and how to avoid a spiritual scam. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take just a few minutes. We're going to read the entire pack, passage. Then I'm going to give you four ideas on how you spot a false teacher. And then we're going to conclude our series just talking about the incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So, let's take a look. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, you can pick it up on the outline uh, sheet that you were given as you came in. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 11. 
He says, notice what large letters I use as I write these closing words in my own handwriting. It's kind of an interesting thing for him to say. I can imagine that, you know, it's, it's kind of bolded, capitalized. You ever get an email like that? Where part, listen, if you bold everything in your emails or your tweets, you're driving us crazy. Okay? Hey, how do you know that? I mean, I just, I just don't have time to read it. It all just looks like it steps out. But when somebody bolds a few words, you go, that must be important. And this is what Paul is doing. He's saying, I wrote this with my own uh, uh, handwriting, and it's large, bold letters. He dictated his letters to a scribe, usually. Dictated them, they wrote them. He says, I'm not dictating this part. This part, he says, is so important. I want you to get it, and I want you to understand, I wrote it with my own handwriting. He says, those who are trying to force you to be circumcised are doing it for just one reason. They don't want to be persecuted for teaching that the cross of Christ alone can save. And even those who advocate circumcision don't really keep the whole law. They only want you to be circumcised so they can brag about it and claim you as their disciples. As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago. And the world's interest in me is also long dead. It doesn't make any difference now whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we really have been changed into new and different people. May God's mercy and peace be upon all of those who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things, for I bear on my body the scars that show that I belong to Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's take just a minute and review the book. It's written by a guy named Paul. Paul is a guy who has been totally transformed by God. He was once an enemy of God. He was once a guy who was actually in charge of persecuting the church. In fact, Christians died as a result of some of the things that Paul did. And then one day, um, he has an encounter with Jesus that totally changes his life, totally transforms him. And he honestly and sincerely wants everybody, all of his friends, he wants all his family members, he wants everybody that listens to him to experience the same thing, falling in love with Jesus, having Jesus transform his life. So Paul feels called by God to plant a church to Celtic people who lived in Galatia, and uh, which is in central Turkey. And so he goes there and he begins preaching the good news. He begins preaching Jesus. And the, the same thing happens to people that happen to him. As you preach Jesus, people see Jesus and they fall in love with Jesus. They begin to see their lives transformed. Formed. And it's an incredible thing. The church is off to an incredible start. Great start. It's exciting. It's enthusiastic. People are being changed. Every week new people are being added to the church. The enthusiasm is almost tangible. You can almost cut it with a knife. It's a totally contagious thing. And then after a couple of years, Paul moves on to the next city because he's a spiritual entrepreneur. He's, a, he's a, an, a, an apostle. So he sets up a leadership team there and he moves on. And as soon as he leaves, false teachers come to the church. They try to get Galatians to reject their freedom in Christ and go back into a form of religious legalism. You know, have you ever been a part of a legalistic church? I mean, don't raise your hands. But some of you have come out of legalism. 
And you know, before we point too many fingers, it's real easy to kind of drop back into legal, legalism. When you've got a list of do's and don'ts, that's a lot easier than depending on the Holy Spirit. But if you've ever been in a church that's really steeped with legalism, you know that people, instead of loving and forgiving one another, that type of an environment, they become mean-spirited, bitter, sometimes factions. And people are talking over here about this group of people over here. There's divisions. It's just nasty. It's just terrible. It's a terrible taste. But somehow you get sucked into that. And Paul knows that when that happens, you're no longer outwardly focused and you're no longer concerned about other people coming to know Jesus, but it's all about trying to clean each other up. And he knows that if they buy into this, that it's going to shipwreck them spiritually. Now, that being said, it's not that unusual for false teachers to get involved in new churches. Most of you know that we're very passionate hear about planting churches. We formed the ARC, the Association of Related Churches, about 11 years ago as a church planting arm of our church. And uh, over that 11 years, we've planted over 230 churches, um, including almost 30 this year. In fact, there's one being planted uh, today uh, somewhere in the United States. We're passionate about it because we believe that church planting is necessary for more and more people to come to know Jesus, both here and around the world. Um, in two weeks, or actually this past week, I, I got a note that said we do an assessment and training and all of that. That um, we, uh, last week, we had more people, record number of people apply to plant churches than we've ever had before by double. We had 120 people just last week apply to, to plant churches. And so there's a real pipeline going on. There's going to be uh, just dozens of churches be planted over the next few months. And then in two weeks, nearly 3,000 people will gather together at the ARC annual all-access conference in Dallas. Billy Hornsby, who was on our staff here, went to be with the Lord about a year ago. And uh, we've just been seeking the Lord over that year about the direction of the ARC. And just a few weeks ago, in fact, we're going to announce it. I'll ask you to keep this a secret for two weeks. But uh, we're going to announce in a couple of weeks that they've asked me to be the leader of the ARC, to give visionary leadership to it. Now, I'm not leaving Seco, so some of you are applauding for that. You know, you're going to have to come up with another, another strategy. We have such a, an incredible team here, a capable team of helping to carry the load, that we're just going to shift my responsibilities a little bit. But uh, we have a goal of planting 2,000 churches in our lifetime. Uh, that's going to be a God thing when that happens. But here's, here's what we know. We know that church planning is hard work. You've, when, anytime one of our guys comes to me and says, like Naeem has and... Sean has, Sean Wood and, and John Holm and Ryan May and some others have come to me who were on our staff and said, I want to go plant a church. I always say the same thing. If you can do anything else, do it. If you can do anything else, do it. Stay right here. Do what you're doing. It's comfortable. It's nice. You're in a resource-rich environment. It's a good place. It's a hothouse for ministry. Because when you go plant a church, it's going to be the toughest thing you've ever done in your life. You've got to raise money, build a team, find buildings, encourage people, share your faith, find time to study for messages for the weekend, counsel the wounded. And then most often you've got to set up and tear down every week in a rented facility because you don't start in a building like this. It's just tough work. And then about the time you get a good start, people start coming, you know, you've got enough money to pay the bills. There's great enthusiasm. About that time, a few weirdos, heretics, and nut jobs start showing up. 
It just always does. And they always have an agenda for uh, what they want in your church. And usually they're trying to steal it from you and, uh, and, and, and somehow take it away. They want to in, in on the action. And so I warn young church planners about that. It happened here. You know, it took us about five years to get any traction here at Seacoast. Five years. Five years for us to grow even back to the place that we were the very first Sunday. So we, we call ourselves the slowest growing mega church in the world. Okay? And people like that because uh, it just it says, well, they're, they're like us. And five years in, I had one of those guys come in the church and declare that he was a prophet. And if uh, we would... Uh, you know, if, if, if I would let him speak here in, in this church, that it would spark a revival like that was going on, I think, in, in uh, Pensacola, Florida at that particular time. And, uh, and he, he got quite a following here in the Charleston area. And he came in and he said, I believe God spoke to me to have you have me speak at Seacoast on an ongoing basis and revival will break out. And I said, you know, I remember, I remember thinking about it. And it was, it was hard because we'd just gotten a little traction and thinking about reaching people and is this God or is it not? So I told him, I said, you know what, God, God hasn't spoken to me yet. He, he really hasn't. Uh, and here's what I'm going to do. And he was very disappointed, not only disappointed, kind of laid a guilt trip on me about that whole thing, which is one of the ways to spot whether somebody's really in the spirit or in the flesh. And I told him, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to examine fruit. I'm, I'm going to be a fruit inspector of you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch you. Got my eyes on you. I'm going to watch you. And if it's good fruit, maybe we'll talk. If not, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to expose you as the wolf that you are. And he turned out to be a wolf. Oftentimes that happens. I, I warn church planners here in Charleston. There's a lot of church planning going on in Charleston. We applaud all of them. We're excited for them. And, and uh, I, I, you know... Uh, church, there are some there are some wolves here. There there are some people who are false teachers who go from church to church to church. And church planters get excited about talented, helpful people. In fact, when you're a church planter, if somebody has a pulse, you're excited about it. Hey, listen, you've got a pulse. Serve in the nursery. Will you do that? Help us set up on the weekend. I had I had one call me just the other day about a guy who'd been through here. That oh man, this guy he can teach and he's talented and all this kind of stuff. I said, careful, careful. It's fool's gold. If you look inside, you're going to get your heart broken. It's going to hurt some of the sheep. It's going to hurt some of the sheep. See, and you know what's interesting is uh, some people uh, some people don't understand or didn't understand my reluctance or don't understand that type of thing. But the, that's the role of the shepherd. I, I want to be liked. I really do. I've got to be honest with you. That's my personality. I'd like for you guys to like me. But there are some things that I'm called to as a shepherd, and that's to protect the flock. And to watch out for wolves. And oftentimes, sheep don't see it. Because we'll see good things happen. In fact, the guy that I was talking about earlier uh, here at Seacoast, I mean, he did some incredible things. And some people were blessed by it, and some people were hurt by it. And you say, well, if I was blessed by somebody who wasn't really real, that's really confusing. That's re- I, I remember a time in my life I felt like that. How does that work? Uh, we did a series on Jonah um, a few weeks ago, and we talked about the fact that Jonah was less than perfect. In fact, he was a real scumbag, really, to be honest with you. I mean, he runs away from God's call, and then when God does a great thing in this evil city, Jonah gets in his lawn chair and gets mad, gets upset. Remember, we did that message. He's upset about it. And the point was this, that um, some people think that um, God can't use a dirty vessel. It has to be a clean vessel in order for God to use. And that's idealistic, but it's not true. I mean, it'd be better if it was a clean vessel. It would be better, but God loves you 
And he loves cities and he loves families so much that he'll use anything possible to touch you. And so if you got something good out of somebody that was later seen to be a false prophet, don't let it confuse you. Just understand that's the grace and mercy of God. It wasn't that person. It's the grace and mercy of God. So, you, so it's not unusual uh, to have you know, these crazies show up when you plant a church. And Paul is in the same situation in Galatia. He started the church. He loved the people. False teachers have come in. The only difference uh, now is that he's somewhere else. He's not pastoring that group of people, but he hears about it, so he has to write a letter. And that's why it's such a harsh letter. This letter doesn't begin, oh, I, I thank God for you every time that I think about you and I, I love you for your faith. No, it starts, you foolish Galatians. And it's a tough, tough letter. The last few verses, he gives some indicators of how to tell if someone is a false teacher. And uh, you know what? We're going to talk about some things today that I hope you'll save this outline sheet somewhere because you need to test every teacher that comes into your life by this. You need to test me by it. Yeah, you, some of you are probably going to move away at some point. You're going to go to another church. And when you do, you need to test, do the Galatians test on who's teaching in order to know whether this is a, a false teacher or a right teacher so that you can avoid a spiritual scam. So let me take just a few minutes and I want to talk about how to spot a false teacher. All right, four things from uh, the first uh, three or four verses. Number one, they're hung up on outward appearance. They're hung up on outward appearance. Galatians 6.12 um, in the NIV. Can you read this out loud together uh, also in the campuses? Could you guys read along with us? Those who want... A lot of times when we read out loud together, we move our lips. Okay, so let's, let's try that again. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. Circle good impression outwardly. That's it. It's all about outward appearance. It has to do with their image. And it has to do with your image. Their image. They're, they're overly concerned with how they look. Maybe they're trying to be hip, cool, young, whatever. And it's good to be hip and cool, okay? Some of us probably ought not to be trying to be quite as hip as what we try to be. And I probably put myself in that category. Some of us just weren't built for hip. You understand what I'm saying? And, uh, and it's okay to want to look good, look cool, all that. But have you ever been around somebody that that's an obsession? That that's an obsession? And when it's in a teacher, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. They're also obsessed not only with how they look, but how everybody else looks. You've got to look a certain way if you're going to be you know, on the in crowd in their deal. If you're going to be on the stage, if you're going to be whatever, it's just this look. And they're overly obsessed about the look. Or maybe it has to do with what people wear, where people go, all that type of thing. It's an outward appearance that is hugely important. And Paul says, circumcision, schmircumcision. That's Greg's translation. He says, the only thing that counts is, are you a new creation? Have you met the living God? Has He changed you? Has He transformed you into a new person from the inside out? See, that's how God works. God renews our mind. He gives us a new spirit and a new heart. And over time, if you're transformed, then that shows up on the outside. Sometimes it takes longer for some than others. But it's going to show up. But it begins on the inside. False teachers are overly concerned about the outside. You know, it's easy to judge somebody, isn't it? Have you ever looked at somebody and said, I'll bet they're not a Christian? Come on. Sure you have. 
you watch American Idol. Or you're looking at somebody at work. Or you see the, you know, the way somebody wears their hair or the clothes they have or whatever it happens to be. And you go, they're probably not a Christian. And then you find out they are. Wow. Because we can be wrong. Because it's not about outward appearance. See? It's, it's not about outward appearance at all. It's about what goes on on the inside. And in fact, if, if, um, if you put enough emphasis on the outside, legalism, morality, rules, traditions, you can get people to be good, look good, not watch certain movies, not wear certain clothes, listen to certain music. But if they don't love Jesus, when they die, they face an eternity without God as a very moral person. Because the only thing that matters is where is your heart? Do they love Jesus? Have they encountered Him? If they have, they'll change. Because that's what God does from the inside out. Paul says the only thing that matters, do you love Jesus? If somebody loves Jesus, their life will get cleaned up. John 14 and verse 15 says, If you love me, obey my commands. Okay? God loves you just the way that you are, but He loves you too much to let you stay that way. You're going to change as you begin to obey the commands of Jesus. But if the goal is to clean up their life without moving them toward loving Jesus, Paul says it's false teaching. It's false teaching. So, number one, a false teacher is really hung up on outward appearance. Number two, they run when things get hot. They run when things get hot. Look at the second part of Galatians 12, uh, 6.12. says the only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Jesus. You know, false teachers sometimes can come off bombastic and loud or bold or even combative. But as soon as times get hard, they're gone. They give up. When there's a little opposition, they disappear. When the work of the church gets hard, they quit. When the money's not there, they're done. They're gone. <clears throat> you can't find them. Paul says true shepherds stick it out when times get tough. They love their people. They realize that hard times come. Hard times come. There are seasons when you're leading a church. There are seasons when you're in ministry. All of us wish, in your own life, in your family, all of us wish that it was harvest time all the time, don't we? Man, that's when it's fun. Things are growing. We're picking fruit. We're just doing great. I wish that harvest was 24-7. Guess what? That's heaven. That's not here. Here we have a planting time. We have, actually, before the planting time, you've got where they, uh, the pruning time. How many of you love pruning time? Okay? Especially when God's pruning you. Or He's pruning the ministry that you're a part of. And you look around and you go, oh my goodness, we used to have this and we don't have it anymore. It's a pruning time. It's a pruning time. Just, it's part of life. And then there's a dormant time. Oh, we're not growing. What do we do now? You know, just hang in there. Hang in there. If you don't get tired, what did we talk about last week? If you don't, if, if you don't get tired of doing good, in due season, you will reap what? A harvest. But it's not harvest time all the time. In your business, it's not harvest time all the time. Your family, it's not harvest time all the time. Paul says, true shepherds stick it out. They love their people. They realize that hard times come. But Jesus is in charge. And if they don't get tired and quit, there's going to be a harvest to just hang in there. But false teachers quit because they're in it for money, fame, and power. Same thing. Uh, 2,000 years ago, it's the same thing today. As soon as they aren't as famous as they thought they'd be, they quit. Or as soon as they aren't paid what they think that they ought to be paid, they're, they're shopping for something else. Or as soon as they aren't given the power 
that they think they deserve, they quit, they move on, they say, God is leading me somewhere else. Can I tell you what? If, if God really is leading everybody who says God is leading them somewhere, God's schizophrenic. You know, I mean, we, we just be sure you're hearing God, not just covering over some stuff. When you say God's leading me out of this relationship or, or whatever, make sure, make sure, make sure that you're, that you're speaking on behalf of holy, holy God. So, you know, it's, it's, it's easier to be a leader when things are going good. Would you agree with that? You look at sports teams and when they're winning, they love each other. This is great. This is awesome. We're just brothers and sisters or whatever. When they get a nice losing streak, then they're biting at one another. You know, they need to trade this one or do that or whatever. See, the proof, you begin to see if someone is in it for the love of God or for selfish gain when things get tough. So false teachers are hung up on outward appearance. They avoid persecution. The third thing they do is they ask you to do things that they don't even do. They ask you to do things that they don't even do. Galatians 6, 13 says, and even those who advocate circumcision don't really keep the whole law. They're hypocrites. They burden people with heavy loads that they're not even obeying themselves. They say, do this, don't do that. But if you followed them, you walked around with them, you kind of shattered them, then you'd find out, hey, they're not even doing that stuff. They're not doing it. You tell something to do something, you better be doing it yourself. You tell them you need to read the Bible, you better be reading the Bible yourself. You tell them, you know, they need to be loving their, their neighbor, then you ought to be able to go to their neighbors and go, do they love you, you know? If they say you ought to be faithful to your spouse, you need to look at them and say, are they faithful to their spouse. Paul says, these guys are telling you to obey the law, but they're not even doing it themselves. They're hypocrites. Hebrews 13 and verse 7. Look at this. Remember your leaders. So who are your leaders? He's going to define them. He's going to define who a leader really is. Who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate them. See, a leader is somebody that you can look at their lives and you can imitate their faith. You go, okay, if I followed them around a little bit, like, like if you're, a, a, you know, maybe you're a young mom and boy, you're feeling like you're in over your, your head and you're looking for a mom who you can kind of imitate. Well, what you want to do is you want to look, how do they treat their kids? What kind of relationship do they have with their husband if they're married? You know, how, how, how do they interact with their, their work or whatever they're doing? Because if it's worth imitating, if it's worth imitating, then they're a leader. But if not, they're not. I don't care what you call them. Somebody one time said, if somebody calls himself a leader and nobody's following, they're just out for a walk, okay? And that's kind of, kind of what it is. It's kind of what it is. But you need to be careful who you follow. If you're a man, look at another man and say, how does he handle his money? How does he handle his relationships? How does he handle anger issues? Because we all have them. How does, how does he handle them? And if, and if it's godly and if it, it looks like something that's worth following, then they may be a leader. If they practice what they preach, call them a leader and imitate it. Just because someone says something doesn't make them a leader worth imitating. In fact, they may be able to say it well and you can be fooled. That's the big deal about teachers. You may be a great speaker. You may be a great speaker. And you're not worth imitating because there's not character behind it. Every once in a while, somebody will say to me, you're a great pastor. And I agree, you know. But, <laughs> but sometimes I worry if that's because God has given me a gift to speak. Because just because I have a gift to speak doesn't make me the real deal. Let me tell you that. I am the real deal. Follow me around. You know, I, I think, I think. I'm open. 
trying to be the real deal. Mess up every once in a while. How many of you mess up every once in a while? Okay. We're not talking about perfection. Okay. We're not talking about nobody's perfect. We're talking about consistency. There's just a consistent report that goes, you know, uh, talk to the kids, talk to their kids, talk to their neighbors, talk to their friends. How is this guy or how is this woman in everyday life? Are they hypocritical or, 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 or are they someone worth uh, emulating? False teachers are hung up on outward appearance. They avoid persecution. They're hypocritical. Here's the fourth thing is they tend to be arrogant. They tend to be arrogant. Galatians 6.13, the second half of the verse says, they only want you to be circumcised so they can brag, circle brag, so that they can brag about it and claim you as their disciples. So it's another, you know, kind of notch on the gun or notch on the belt. This is how many people we had this week. You're my disciple. It's kind of just something to brag about. They boast a lot. They like to tell you what they've done or where they've succeeded. Listen, it's real. It's a whole lot easier to sniff this out these days with Facebook and Twitter. All you got to do is follow their Facebook account and Twitter account. And if there is a real lack of humility, then you can say it may very well be a false teacher. Now, does Paul boast? Yeah. In fact, if you read his writings, he boasts a lot, actually. But it's always about the work of God in himself, in other people, and in the church. In fact, Galatians 6.14 says, As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being proud of what God is doing. You know, if you're, if you're excited and proud about what God is doing in your home, boast about it. If you're excited about what the work of God in your business or the blessings of God on your life, sometimes we walk around with a false sense of humility. Well, you know, you know, it's all God. And, all, and you know, it is, but th- there's a false sense of humility that's really pride. Do you understand what I'm saying? And it's okay to say every good and perfect gift. In fact, James 1 and verse seven, uh, 17 says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. There, there's a difference between bragging on what God has done and what He has given and bragging about what you have done. You don't have to be ashamed if God has blessed you financially. You don't have to be ashamed if God has blessed you and your family. You don't have to be ashamed about that stuff. In fact, you can brag on the God that God is so good. See, when you walk away from a false teacher or leader, all that echoes in your brain is how wonderful they are. How wonderful they are. When you, when you walk away from a true shepherd, all you remember is how wonderful God is. That's just kind of the litmus test of the whole deal. They can talk about the same things, but there's a different tone. There's a sense of humility. So to kind of wrap up that passage, Paul says, don't commit to false teachers. He said, all they want to do, all they care about is appearance and not changed hearts. They want to avoid suffering and persecution and hardship. And sometimes your life's going to be difficult. Just keep loving Jesus. Don't give in to hypocrites who say one thing and do another. Be consistent. Don't be arrogant and proud. When things go well, make sure that you're boasting about Jesus because Christianity is not about works. It's not about you being a good person. It's about God being incredibly good and a good God. It's not about what you and I do. It's about what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
Christianity is not about cleaning ourselves up so that we'll be worthy and presentable to God. It's about God cleansing us from the inside out so that we become accurate reflections of who He is. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus loving people and people loving Him back and becoming new creations in Christ. It's about God adopting you and I into His family so that we can call Him Father God. See, it's about being, in, in, in chapter 5, he says it's about being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's about being Spirit-filled so that you, you are bearing fruits of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's about being so full of the Holy Spirit that you're just overflowing these things. And then in verse or chapter 6, he says it's about us being the church. And loving each other and encouraging each other. And when we sin, gently restoring one another. It's about living out, as we talked about last week, gospel rhythms in our lives. It's about being instruments of blessing for everybody who's around us. See, let me tell you what that is. That's the new normal. That's what God wants in His church. That's the life that God has for us. I love verse 15. It's probably the crucial verse of this whole last part of the chapter. It says, it doesn't make any difference now whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we've been changed into new and different people. Can it get any plainer than that? That's the new normal. In church, we can get hung up on things that don't matter. You ever been in a church that they're all hung up on style? You know, should we sing this? Should we have contemporary? Should we not? Should we do this? Well, we get hung up on issues that honestly don't matter in the long run. We get hung up on personalities and types of ministry. Paul says, here's all that matters. Do you know Jesus? Have you encountered the living God? Is He making you a new creation? That's it. I don't care about your denomination. I don't care about your tradition. I don't care about your background. Do you love Jesus? If you love Jesus, then you and I are brothers. We're on the same team. Now let's get it done together. God is at work in you and He's at work within me. And that's what counts. See, whenever God's love encounters somebody, it explodes into their life. It changes them. That's the new normal. So how do you get there? How do you get there? One last verse. Galatians 6.18 closes the book with this. My dear brothers and sisters, may the grace... Actually, we should read this together. It's so powerful. Let's read it together. Campuses, let's read it together. My dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. How do you get there? It's about grace. It's about grace. You know, we're tempted from time to time to think that it's all about us. Kind of that we're flying solo, that we're alone, that God abandoned us, that we're isolated, that we've got to fix ourselves. There are some of you here today that that's the thought in your mind. You, you, you feel like you're unworthy even to be here because you've got to clean up in order to come to church. And you know what you're, you, there, there's a mess going on in your life right now. You've got this thought, I've got to clean it up. I've got to fix it in order to be worthy before God. I've got to do something to please a holy and righteous God. Can I tell you something? Listen to me. Listen to me. 
two or three weeks, we're going to be celebrating Easter. And on that Good Friday, Jesus on the cross, just before he gave it all up, he said, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, it was done. It was done. All that's left for you and I is to love and trust him. There's no bad karma to work off. No working off your sin. No sitting in the penalty box a certain amount of time because of what you've done. No. It's all about Jesus. It's all about His grace. We don't deserve love, but we are loved. We are not clean, but we are cleansed. Even when we screw up, the Bible says, we are faithless. Have you ever been faithless? It says that God is faithful. That's grace. God's grace does things. It transforms us. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Not by um, your, yourself. It is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It transforms life. Sometimes in the New Testament, they'd change names. We probably ought to change names every once in a while around here. Paul was Saul, but he encountered Jesus and he became Paul. Peter was Simon, a reed blown back and forth. Encountered Jesus, he became Peter, Petra, the rock. Because you encounter God's grace, it transforms you. You get a mulligan. So that's the best thing I like about golf. Mulligans. Take a bad swing. Hey, you didn't mean to do that. Take a mulligan. You hit a bad one again. Hey, take another mulligan. You hit a bad one again. You're going to have to play that one. But that's not good. God says take another one. Take how many ever you need. It's about my grace. Not only does it transform your life, but grace equips us for service. God's grace gives us gifts. That's what's incredible. You, you come to Jesus and He gives you supernatural abilities in order to partner with Him on the redemption plan. He's given everybody in here supernatural abilities. It's, it's gifts that equip us for service. We become conduits of God's grace. That's why I'm hyped up about Easter and we all be involved in that whole Easter deal because we're going to be conduits of God's grace. His grace energizes us. There will be times when you feel tired. And when you're tired, you tend to lose hope. And that's when you need God's grace, His energy grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out His special favor on me, not without results. For I have worked harder than all other apostles, yet it was not I, but, but God who was working in me by His grace. Almost sounds like he's bragging, but he's not talking about him. He said, you know, you know where I get my energy? I was walking in here today. And I just happened to be walking in one of our, with one of our volunteers. I said, what do you do for a living? And he, he said, well, that's kind of a complicated question. He has three businesses. And he's got three kids. He's been volunteering here in the children's ministry for six years. I said, wow, your life is full. And he said, yeah. Some people ask me how I have the energy. And he said, God gives me grace. I said, he gets it. He gets it. He's living by the energy and the grace of God. It's all about God's grace. In fact, one last thing I want to say to you. Regardless of what you came in here with today, you, 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 you need something. Might be in your family, might be in your personal life, might be in your business, might be spiritually. You need something. Let me tell you the answer to every one of you is the same. Here's what you need. You need God's grace. That's all. That's it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your kingdom. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for how much you love us. 
You warn us against false teachers that would derail us and keep us from experiencing that one most precious thing, and that's the grace of God. And now today, God, I just pray that here in campuses, on the internet, podcasts, wherever you happen to be, God, I pray that you would apply your grace in incredible measures. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.